I'm Dee Dee West, and this is Broken Limelight. Today, I have an extra special guest. Everybody meet Celeste Good. Celeste just happened to message me on Instagram and was like, hey, you should cover John Holmes and the Wonderland murders. And I was like, I am literally in the middle of researching it right now. <laughs> so instantly, I was like, can we talk about it? Can we, can we sit down together so I can talk to somebody about this? Because... You guys are going to see that this is one of those cases that it just takes so many twists and turns that it's not even like, oh, this should be a movie. No, this should be like three or four movies. Definitely. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about John Holmes, the notorious porn star. He might have actually been the really or the first really big male porn star. Like when we talked about Linda Loves Lovelace was the first uh, porn star. John Holmes was actually like the first male, the first male one before Ron Jeremy, before anybody. Mm -hmm. Well, at the peak of his fame, his world took a sinister turn when he became heavily addicted to cocaine. And I mean, not just because of the cocaine, but John Holmes did a lot, a lot of really garbage things. Most famously, he got himself involved in a crime that is now known as the Wonderland murders. This is also the story that inspired the 1997 film Boogie Nights. And later in 2003, they would make uh, another film called Wonderland that was more closely to nonfiction. Have you seen Boogie Nights, Celeste? Oh, of course. It's one of my favorite, honestly. <laughs> I actually uh, just watched it for the first time like a week ago just because of this case. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because I've heard of Boogie Nights, but I had no idea that it, it was inspired by a true story. Right. I didn't realize that until recently either. Because here you yeah, think I, it's just like an era movie. Exactly. You hear about it so much that I figured it was a classic, but I, I had no idea that it was like based on anything true. And like, just to be clear, it's not nonfiction. Like Boogie Nights is like all the characters have different names. They're all fictional. They're just very closely based on the characters. Like they're based on John Holmes. They're based on the Wonderland gang and um, mm -hmm. Eddie Nash and all of these characters. Mm-hmm. The one thing everybody knows about John Holmes is that he was involved in these murders, but I'm going to tell you guys exactly how he got involved in these murders. Cause he literally went from like the peak of fame to crackhead. Yeah. Being the guy that everybody hated, like nobody wanted to do anything for this man, let alone these Not drug dealers. Exactly. Just like you said, it wasn't even the drug drug dealers. It wasn't just that people hated him. It's that nobody could fucking trust him. Like everybody, mm -hmm. he, he seemed like the kind of person who would either do some shady shit or do some stupid shit to get everybody caught. Mm -hmm. I agree. All right. So let's get down to business. John Holmes was born on August 8th, 1944 on the kitchen table of his grandparents' country home in Pickaway County, Ohio. He was the youngest of four kids born to Mary June Holmes. His father was a guy who wouldn't stick around. John's biological father was actually named Carl Estes, but John wouldn't find out about him until 1986 when he was like 43 years old. So this was literally like two years before John died. So his mother, Mary, had been married to a guy named Edgar Holmes, and Edgar was the father of John's oldest three siblings. But Mary and Edgar would marry and divorce three times. So if you look at the dates of the marriage certificates and the divorce filings, it seems that John was born during a gap in the relationship while they were separated. Mary was 17 years old when she married Edgar the first time, and Edgar was 35 years old and he had already been divorced. So John's birth certificate actually doesn't list a father, and John's name is listed as John's Estes. 
And what happened was when John was about 43 years old, he went to go apply for a passport and he had to take his birth certificate. And that's when he realized, like, not only is Edgar Holmes not listed as his father, but his last name was completely different. Eventually, Mary would get back together with Edgar after giving birth to John, and she ended up changing John's last name to Holmes legally. So John grew up believing his whole life that Edgar was his biological father, just like the rest of his siblings. So Mary was a devout Southern Baptist, and Edgar was a devout alcoholic. He would yell and fight a lot, and he was said to come home so wasted that he would fall over on the children and vomit on them and all over their beds. Mary and Edgar would split up for the final time when John was about three or four years old, and Mary went to live with another woman and her kids. They were both in a similar financial situation, so they kind of helped each other with their kids and to get their lives back on track. Eventually, Mary met another man named Harold Bowman, and she married him. When John was around eight or nine years old, Harold bought a house for the family, and things really started to look up for all of them. Harold didn't drink, but he was under a lot of pressure financially now that he had a wife and four new kids. Eventually, Harold started taking out his anger on Mary's kids. John often took the brunt of it because he was the smallest and wasn't quick enough to get out of his way. And then Mary got pregnant again and had another boy named David when John was about nine. At this point, Harold had completely turned on Mary's oldest four children and only cared about David. It was said that Harold might have been manic depressive. Um, At one point, Harold actually stuck his hand into a meat grinder at work in order to start collecting disability. Harold would continue beating on John into his teenage years until John was about 16 and uh, John stood up for himself. Harold one day backhanded him off of a chair and across a room and John got up and just decked him in the face. He took him right down and John decided at that moment to leave for the army at 16 years old and his mother gave her written permission. But I read in one source that John told her like, if you don't let me go, I'm going to fucking kill your husband. So at 16 years old, John was stationed in West Germany and he would spend three years there until he was honorably discharged from the army at 19 and then decided to move to California to start a new life. So by 19, he had already gone and done and and finished an entire military career. And then, of course, it seems like California is where everybody went to make their dreams come true. It's like um, Hollywood. Have you seen the movie Blow? Yes, I love that That's movie. That's like the first thing they do is they go to California and they go to the beach and it's like this wonderland. Oh, wonderland. Right? Look at that. <laughs> That's what it is. So John got out of the military and he tried to do a few different odd jobs. Like he worked as an ambulance driver and that's where he met his first wife, Sharon. I'm sorry. Sharon was studying. Do we know why huh? he was discharged? It says he was honorably discharged. So, okay, so maybe he didn't he do anything wrong. Something. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, sorry. Or he just, I don't know. Yeah. But isn't that crazy? In three years, yeah. he's done. They're like, good job. Go home. Wow. <laughs> I was just thinking, I wonder what would have, ha- what would have happened or what did happen, you know, to be honorably discharged. Same. How do you retire from the military at 19? <laughs> so, um, John met his first wife, Sharon, who was studying to be a nurse, which is adorable, a nurse mm-hmm. and an ambulance driver. Within two years, they were married, but John was very possessive of Sharon from the very start. The only way I can describe Sharon is as a true ride or die. She stuck by John's side through everything. 100%. Up until even after he died. Literally. She didn't say a bad word about him until after he died. 
He insisted on being the only one that worked in the beginning, mostly because he didn't want her to go out and meet anybody. And he refused to let Sharon meet anybody who he worked with. He like really seemed to keep her a secret. And it's interesting because she found it as respectful. Like she wanted to be private. In the beginning, John and Sharon wanted to have kids together, but Sharon would sadly suffer through three miscarriages. So she actually considered that to be a sign from God, and she started secretly taking birth control, hmm, which is pretty. fucking lucky. Can you imagine? Yeah. Just because she, she would have gotten into that into something serious with somebody she didn't actually know who that was. You know? Can you imagine later finding out, holy shit, this is the person I chose to raise a family with? Right? Oh, my God. As an adult, John was really well-liked, albeit a bit shy. He was very health-conscious. He took a lot of vitamins and he never drank or used drugs. And I'm guessing this is because he saw the effect that alcohol had on his stepfathers. John was seemingly an intelligent guy, but he may have felt self-conscious about not having a complete education. And this is something that Sharon would bring up too. Like she mentioned how he, he did a lot of of odd jobs when he got out of the military and he seemed to always kind of be shuffling around looking for what he was good at. Also, it was said that he had a lot of, like, street smarts. Like, when you spoke to him, he was very well-spoken and he knew how to carry a conversation. And I think that's part of the reason he was so charming. Like, he was an intelligent guy, but I think his lack of a formal education was where he himself felt that he lacked. Yeah, I could see that for sure. And he probably had so much self-doubt because of the, you know, stepfather and all the, you know, negativity growing up. Mm-hmm. So... Around 1967, John was told about doing short pornographic films. Pornography wasn't legal yet in the early 60s, so John began doing nude photographs and nude dancing. According to John, he was at a poker parlor one day, and he went to use the restroom when another guy caught a glimpse of John's 13-inch penis and told him that he should consider doing porn. John's penis was rumored to be anywhere between 10 and, like, 15 inches, but it's very easy to look it up and verify. Like... This thing was huge. (laughs) One of the books that I was reading was called John Holmes, A Life Measured in Inches. And this is what's funny about reading books. It's not like scrolling. You turn the page and then it's like, bam, there's a picture of a gigantic dong in your face. And it's like, it's huge. Like, I don't know how to say (laughs) I'm exaggerating, but it's because like, like, out, like. So this guy who was in the bathroom next to him was like, a recent film graduate from UCLA. So he took one look at John's penis and was like, okay, you're going to be a star and you're going to make me some money. Mm -hmm. John was excited about the idea because he finally felt like he found a job where he would be appreciated. Like this was something he, he had something that nobody else had. And I mean, imagine that even in the porn industry, he was huge. So for somebody to be like, you're the best of the best of the best, you know? He probably felt really good about himself. I was going to say that's going to go right to his head. And when you think about it, for a lot of men, that's where they feel their shortcoming, you know? So he probably, if it were me and I was self-conscious about my brains, anywhere you went, you could probably say, well, at least I have the biggest dick in the room, you know? (laughs) That's That's a really strong argument. John had a girl next door who he was kind of hooking up with, and she asked him if he would like to make $100 to participate in a stag film. And this is how John would become the first hardcore porn star. So even those early pornographic films, you wouldn't see 
all like penetration or like anything very direct in those first few films. So if you recall when we talked about Linda Lovelace, early porn films had like Andy Warhol's blowjob. And what they did was they basically filmed a guy's O face. So you can't see him getting the blowjob. You're just seeing the reaction in his face as he's getting the blowjob. And then, like, it would be kind of, like, softcore porn or implied things. So you could see, like, John hooking up with a woman, but they would be very careful to, like, cover his penis so you couldn't actually see the penetration going on. So one day, John's wife, Sharon, came home from work, and she found John in the bathroom measuring his penis and, like, admiring it. And she was like, what are you doing? So he expressed to her that he wanted to start doing pornography. Of course, he had already been doing it for a while, but she wasn't aware of that. But either way, Sharon was appalled. She, I mean, she was a really, like, a good girl to begin with. But she just wasn't into the idea of her husband doing porn, which is, like, understandable. I mean, everybody's got their boundaries. And, I mean, this was no longer just... valid. It was, yeah, it was no longer just nude modeling. But now he's actually fucking girls. And, again, he's the pioneer of this. So it's not even, like, mainstream yet. He's the first guy to come home to his wife and be like, hey, I'm fucking other women for money on camera so she told john how she felt about it and i mean it was a deal breaker for her so she looked at him and she was like i don't think you're asking me for permission anyway right you're just you're gonna go out and do what you want to do and john was like yeah yeah i am and you're not allowed to be uptight about this and sadly that was something that sharon heard often from him you're not allowed to be uptight about this poor sharon She's been like his ride or die and to just be ignored, like, poor thing. Yeah, I mean, she can't have any kind of boundary without him acting like she's being a tight ass. And I think that a lot of women can probably relate to that. Uh, from then on, John and Sharon were no longer romantically together. They remained married and they continued living together and they even like continued sharing the same bed. She continued cooking dinner for him and doing his laundry, but the relationship was basically platonic. I'm assuming that she felt like a moral obligation to be his wife, like to take care of him in sickness and in death. But I feel like it was the sexual aspect that she was like, I can't do this while other people are doing like, I don't, at this point it's, it's a sanitary, uh, a safety thing, you know? Well, Maybe. I think that's because my, she's, that's a, my guess. well, also she's a nurse, so she's probably seen more than he has. You're probably right. So John continued making his films and he was said to have been pretty good at his job, but I mean, I guess it depends on who you ask. Cause it was said his acting was not very good. But the thing is, he was very good at coming on cue, which I I imagine in this industry is just like, I imagine that's a big skill, you know, not only is his dick huge, but he can make it go off whenever he wants. They said that they actually, um, on the set one day, they all like counted down from 10. And when they got to one, he came like, and it was a big game, like a celebration, like it's fucking New Year's. That's crazy. But since pornography was illegal, producers could be arrested for pimping and pandering. On some occasions, John would actually go out himself and procure a young woman to participate in these films with him. But also during this time, because it was illegal, they often wouldn't tell the actors exactly where they were going to film. So they would have the actors meet them at like a restaurant or some location, and then they would like come pick them up and take them to the actual set. So it's possible that maybe John was just told, hey, 
go to this place. And then these two girls were told to go to the same place. And then John got caught with them. Either way, it turned out these girls were underage. They were like 16 and 17 years old. So John got arrested. To avoid facing felony charges, John agreed to be an informant for the police against the porn industry. So he would actually tell the cops to wait outside while they filmed. And then once they were done, he would come out and give them their violation. He already started as a rat so early. He wasn't even on drugs yet. According to Sharon, John seemed proud to be helping the police, almost as if he felt like one of them. And I feel like this might have been one of those instances where he just felt important. Mm -hmm. In 1974, John started part-time living with a woman named Gilda Grant, who was a porn actress who John had been dating. He was still living with Sharon, but it was like on and off because now that he's a big porn star and he's kind of a celebrity, he's like out working all night, all the time, just coming home willy nilly. And see, I think this is why John got good at sneaking around with multiple women because with Sharon, he would tell her he was working late and that was kind of justifiable. And it's not really clear if she allowed him to go sleep with other women or if it was just kind of don't ask, don't tell. She was going to pretend she didn't know. I don't know. But on the other end, nobody knew that John was married. He was very good at keeping her a secret. And again, I think she found that respectful once he got into the porn industry. I think she took it as like, don't involve me in in this business of yours. Mm -hmm. So again, because it's the 70s, nobody has cell phones. So also nobody had John's phone number because if they were going to call his house, his wife would pick up the phone. So John used an answering service where people could call and leave him messages. And then he would go pick up like a stack of like, of like little paper cards with messages written oh on them. Oh my goodness. Uh-huh. Yeah. Or equally, he could leave a message at the service saying like, hey, if, if Sharon calls, tell her I'm at this place or whatever. But it's interesting because he was able to have multiple girlfriends this way and nobody ever found out about each other. Oh my God. In any case, John was dating this woman. Her name was Gilda Grant. And a lot of people believe that if John ever loved anyone, it was Gilda. Eventually, though, she found out that John was married and she dumped him. In 1971, Sharon's employer gave her the opportunity to manage an apartment complex in Glendale. John put a lot of work into fixing the place up and Sharon allowed him to co-manage it with her. It seemed that he was good at maintenance around the place and he liked fixing things up like furniture and things like that. So she was kind enough to like give him the job of like apartment co-manager with her. In 1976, John's younger brother David would go live with them at the Glendale Apartments. David was married at this point, but he had epilepsy, and their mom always insisted that John help look out for him. Remember, David was a little brother that was born Mm -hmm. from the stepdad. So I kind of wonder if if John held some kind of resentment towards him. I wouldn't be surprised, in all honesty. Sharon was not fond of David. She says that David was actually the one that turned John onto drugs like marijuana. Like I said, John didn't actually do any drugs up until about 1973. He tried to be really healthy after he saw the effect that alcohol alcohol had on his father, but he did start smoking pot with David, which eventually escalated to mushrooms and quaaludes, other pills, etc. And Sharon was not down to have that in her own home. But since they had their own apartment complex, they just kind of like gave David and his wife their own unit. So they were like, okay, we'll help you out, but you're not coming to live in my house, Mm. which is fucking fair. Yeah, absolutely. I think Sharon put up with so, so much or accepted so much. Just wait. (laughs) 
So around the same time that David came to live in the apartment complex, John would meet a new tenant at their apartment complex named Don Schiller. Now, this is a big trigger warning because we're going to take a little detour to talk about Dawn. Dawn is a 15-year-old girl with a really crappy life, and she's about to be become groomed by John. She's going to be his girlfriend. So Dawn Schiller had it really rough growing up. She was born in 1961 and had a younger sister named Terry and a younger brother named Wayne, who was named after their father, Wayne. Their father, Wayne, was absent for most of Don's younger years as he was in the military and he served time in Vietnam. Their mother was German. Her name was Etta. And she met Wayne in Germany and kind of came back with him to the United States for, like, the American dream. Like, she met an American soldier and fell in love and, you know, came to the United States with a dream to start over and start a family here. Um, Sadly, because he was stationed in Vietnam, she ended up being kind of like a single mother This guy kind of, like, left for Vietnam and just disappeared into the military. He rarely communicated with his family except when he needed something. Like, one time after, like, years of them not hearing from him, he called them up and told Etta that he was stuck in jail in Thailand and needed money to get out. So she rushed and she got all of her savings, like, everything she had been putting, putting away over the years, and she sent it to him, only to go months without hearing from him again. So I'll be honest, like... Thank you for your service, sir. But this guy was a very irresponsible, like, hippie guy. Yeah. So meanwhile, Etta struggled to raise her kids in Florida by herself in a pretty dangerous neighborhood where the girls had to learn to defend themselves. So Dawn was about 15 and her younger sister was like a year younger. And she would describe seeing her sister like having to like watching her sister become hardened because of like gang stuff and like fights in her neighborhood and shit and she had to like literally like defend herself sadly by the time their father returned he wasn't the same loving man that they had remembered so wayne returned from vietnam when don was about 15 and the family was super excited to have him back even the mother etta she like dressed up all sexy and she was ready to take him into the bedroom but unfortunately once they got into the bedroom he broke the news that he wanted a divorce so don and her sister missed the hell out of their dad. Like, they remember him as treating them like his little princesses, and they desperately tried to connect with him. He was a huge hippie, and in conversation, they all realized that they all enjoy smoking pot. Now, Wayne, the father, he's immediately, like, impressed with Don's skills at rolling a joint. So she starts rolling joints for him often, like, trying to find ways to bond with him, and they would smoke together, and she kind of, like, was trying to impress him so she would hold like pretend to hold in more smoke than she actually could and like she had to like start controlling how much she smoked because she was trying to keep up with him um and terry's kind of doing the same thing um the little brother wayne he's only like seven at this point so the poor kid is also like desperately trying to get his dad's attention but of course doesn't do drugs so he's like at the side of the table while everybody else is smoking weed just like trying and trying to like find things to, to show his dad and like to, to tell him about like a little boy you know he's like bringing him all his pets and shit yeah but also this little kid last time he saw his dad he was like two years old so he really he doesn't know what to do he just knows that this guy is his dad So remember how I said that Wayne asked his wife for a divorce? Mm -hmm. Well, before he had a chance to move out, he came down with something. He started getting this intense pain between his eyes and he got really sick. 
And it turns out that he had a tumor in his forehead, like in between his eyes. Oh, wow. So this complicated everything because Edda is a good woman and she didn't want to just like abandon this guy. So she took him to the hospital, but she straight up told him that maybe this is karma for him abandoning his family for all those years. So Wayne gets surgery and he, he has the tumor removed, but he would be but he would be in pain for a really long time. He had to take medication and like rewrap this huge bandage on his face every single day. So after Wayne gets home from the hospital, he starts planning his exit from the home. But before he goes, he asks the kids, so who wants to come with me and who wants to go with mom? Essentially tearing the family apart. Don and Terry, these poor girls desperately miss their father, who was now this like super cool hippie guy, like a big stoner, and they opted to go with their father. I think also like when you're a teenager, it's natural and normal to fight with your mom. And I mean, with her being the single parent, she probably, I mean, she had to bring the thunder a lot, you know, she had to put her foot down and be the bad guy. Cause like there was no one else. And she, she was like working a lot trying to make the family survive. Etta was of course heartbroken that the girls didn't want to go with her, but um, their younger brother Wayne through tears chose to go with his mom. Of course he was a little guy. He probably needed his mom and he didn't even know this guy. Yeah. So, so Wayne's plan was to take the girls across the country to California. He told Don through like bonding and getting high that he actually married another woman in Thailand and her name was Pensy and they had a baby boy named Jack. So now he had to, yeah. So now he had to establish a new place for them to live um, so that they could, like, move out here with him. Dawn's sister, Terry, ended up running away before it was time to move. It seems like early on she could, all, she could feel like a disconnect between her and her dad. Like, she just wasn't able to bond with him as well. And, like, these poor kids seem like they felt unwanted. But anyway, Terry ran away and she went to live with her boyfriend, Juan, who was 18. Terry's 14 again. Um, Dawn desperately searched and searched for her because she didn't want to move across the country without her sister. So when she finally found her, she insisted that Terry was coming to California with him. Terry was reluctant, but she agreed to go as long as their dad would allow her to bring her boyfriend. They had to convince their dad to let him come along. So they told him that Juan has money and he has plenty of weed and he'll work, he'll help us out, whatever. Wayne was like, okay, you know what? We could use plenty of weed on a road trip. So that's why he let him come along. So so they hop into a car and they head to California, but it turns out that Wayne doesn't actually have a plan on where they're going to go when they get there. So they drive all the way across the country for, for a few days and they start running out of weed. So they decide, like, maybe they can pick up a hitchhiker who looks like they smoke weed and maybe they'll get lucky. And they made it into a game. Like every time they saw a hitchhiker, they were like, Oh, he doesn't, he looks too straight laced, you know? And finally they found a guy who looked like a hippie. So they picked him up and his name was Marty and he does indeed have weed. Although he was kind of skeptical about smoking it in the car with these teenagers, but Wayne's like, no, no, they're cool. So they all get high and Wayne casually mentions to Marty that they just drove across the country and they have nowhere to go, but they want to stay in California. So Marty's like, well, I'm headed to my girlfriend's house in Glendale and I'm sure she won't mind letting you all stay with her. They arrive at Marty's girlfriend's house and his girlfriend's name is Harriet. Harriet says she doesn't mind letting them all stay in her one bedroom apartment for a while. Like they can all find a spot on the floor, the couch, like wherever they can find a spot. But she just needs to make sure with the apartment manager that it's all right. 
So she calls up the manager, and that's when John Holmes enters the apartment and meets Don Schiller for the first time. John was 32 at this point. He took one look at Don and asks, how old are you? She said, 15, why? And he dramatically grabs his chest, like, to act disappointed, and he says, mm-mm-mm, too bad. And she's like, what? And he's like, too young. Right away, Don thinks he's a creep. He wasn't particularly, or she didn't find him particularly attractive, um, and, like, Don and Terry kind of laughed at the way he would dress. He would wear, like, bright-colored sneakers. And, like, I don't know, maybe that was cool in his world. But they had no idea he was famous because, of course, they're children and they don't watch pornography. So they don't recognize him. And they think he's goofy-looking. Mm-hmm. But Harriet, she always seemed to get all, like, giddy and nervous and, like, fangirly around John. So one day, Don straight-up asked her what that was all about. Like, why do you act like that in front of him? Harriet took Dawn into, like, a secret room that she had, and she was keeping, like, a shrine, like, of posters of John. But it was John as Johnny Wad, a character he played in pornography films. So these are explicit photos with, like, his dick and everything. And Dawn is 15, and she's never been exposed to this kind of thing. So she's a little bit in shock. I gotta tell you, like, these adults, like Harriet and Wayne... This is grooming, right? Like, they're just acting yeah. like, like porn and weed are just totally normal for a kid to be around. I think it's, I think it's really, like, it's, it's, it's beyond negligent. But I also think it's, like, super insensitive to be that person to do that in front of kids, regardless if they're 14, 15 or not, you know? I think this is why, like, when people say, like, you're not supposed to be your kid's friend, you're supposed to be their parent, it's, it's doing this shit, like... Like, they're not adults yet, so you sh- you shield them from adult things. I agree, I agree completely. Because that's exactly how grooming happens. I think, it's, I think it's weird when adults put that into children's lives. I just, I think it's something for everybody to experience at their own age at the right time for whatever reason. Yeah, I think it's weird to look at a child and instead of seeing innocence, like they're too innocent to do that, you see it as like, I'm going to be the one to show them this adult thing and like bring mm-hmm. them into maturity it's weird like you're literally taking your weird weird that people want to do that i agree as time went on don terry and juan were more and more left on their own marty ended up leaving harriet's house like he had another girlfriend he was like i'm gonna be gone for a few weeks so harriet started hooking up with wayne so everybody just has like a side girl and like a new girlfriend is bound to get a new man that's like right there yeah, like Wayne, the whole reason he's in California is to get a house for his second wife, wife <laughs> and child. And he's hooking up with a girlfriend for a place, for this random girl for a place to stay. Anyway, he he also probably like needed a woman to ca- take care of him. Because remember, he's got this huge bandage on his face. Yeah. You know what so I mean? He's like, so he's like trying to not only find a wife, but like a nurse that can handle these things. Right. Yeah. He's thinking so smart. <laughs> He's thinking in the long run. Yeah. So all of these adults are just like getting high all the time. And Wayne and Harriet pretty much told the kids flat out that they were going to have to earn their keep. Like they were going to have to figure out where to get food and like how to contribute to the household. They're uh-huh. 14 and 15. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So John... 
he was kind enough to offer them jobs around the complex, like cleaning up and doing gardening work. And I, like I say, kind enough, kind of sarcastically, because we all know he has other intentions. He's like, he's making them comfortable around him. And he's, he's doing a lot to help them when in a, in a time where he can see that like they don't have anybody else like it became glaringly clear that nobody was taking care of these kids or like even feeding them they were emaciated wayne oh didn't wayne didn't seem to give a shit about them so they were bored they were alone and they were hungry and john started coming by and bringing them snacks and he would bring them pot and he would offer to take them out and like let's go camping i'll take you to the beach i'll take you to hollywood he was super nice to, th to them and they all started warming up to him Again. And by this time, was he already, like, having sex with her, doing things with her by this time of him taking them out and about? Or did that come later? Not yet. It'll come later. So this is this is how it starts. Um, like, if you put yourself in their shoes, they have nobody. They got into a car with their dad, and he took them across the country, and then he got a girlfriend and forgot about them. And told mm -hmm. them. He told them as much, you know? Like, you have to feed yourself. And, like, take care of yourself. And then what happens is they make friends with another guy who lives in the apartment complex and he ends up letting Terry and Juan move in with them because, you know, they're a couple. And the guy ends up moving out and leaving them his apartment. So now Terry and Juan have their own apartment and Dawn is like by herself with her dad and Harriet. So now she feels like she's imposing on them and Harriet starts kind of being bossy like a mother, but she, not really having the affection of a mother, just kind of like making it known that like, hey, you've got to be responsible around here and contribute to the household. And now that Juan and Terry have their own place, Wayne straight up tells them, well, Terry, you decided to move out. So now you've got to either take care of yourself or you've got to like your man's got to take care of you. Mm -hmm. She's 14. She has no idea what she's doing. And he's just putting her out into the wild. Like, that's so terrible. And he made her choose between him and her mom. And then, like, when she chose him, he just stopped taking care of her. And then he essentially almost made him made her pick between him and the boyfriend with that comment. And obviously, mm -hmm. she's going to pick the boyfriend because, you know, she's 14 and thinks that this is love. And, you know, that's the way, I don't know, maybe at that time, that's the way it should be. And well, yeah, a, exactly. Right? And as a parent, I mean, I just feel like at 14... You don't, you are just barely coming into like your body, let alone knowing who you are. Right. I mean, in the beginning, somebody should have told her, Hey, that guy's too old for you. What are you doing with an 18 year old? But like, we're beyond that. But at this point, like, the fact that the fact that when Don stayed in the house with him and he still didn't take care of her, that goes to show he had no intentions of taking care of, of he had Terry. No intentions whether, of ever being a dad. Exactly. Whether or not she had a boyfriend, like, he he lucked out with Ton, uh, with Terry moving in with her boyfriend. Like now mm -hmm. he doesn't have to take mm -hmm. her. That's what he's saying. Yeah. Like one less thing on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. So this left Dawn all alone with her father and Harriet. <coughs> mm -hmm. sorry. Uh, sorry. It left her, it left Dawn. Uh, sorry. This left Dawn all alone with her father and Harriet. And she feels desperately lonely and also kind of starting to feel like a burden. So she spent as much time as she could with Terry and Juan. And as it becomes clear that Dawn is all alone in the world, John would start checking up on her more and more, especially when the school year started. He would knock on her door in the morning to make sure that she was awake on time. And, like, he legitimately seemed to, like, care for her. Like, it seemed like nobody even knew she existed. And 
he was kind enough to make sure she got she got a, she was awake on time for school you know i wonder if like in a weird like psychological way it was his way of like kind of feeling like himself with her because maybe he was kind of feeling that way at that age you know before he left his mom's house and so he saw a little bit of himself in this girl not agreeing with anything he did but like i wonder if there was some sense of like himself in her you know and that's why he tried to be we'll call it nice in the beginning like i'm not saying what he did was right but that was probably him trying to be genuine i think you have a great point i think in general when people um have that attraction to people who are underage i think it has a lot to do with like their stunted growth like where they are mentally it's kind of like um when we talked about uh, baby groupies and like Elvis Presley, it was said that he dated younger girls because he felt inadequate sexually. So I feel like that, that could go for anything. Like if you're like John Holmes, he felt inadequate intellectually. Well, with a 15 year old, he probably felt like the smartest guy in the world. Like he was cultured, you know, he'd been, or he'd been to Germany, you know? Oh, for sure. And, and yeah, I, I bet that's a big, like part of the psychology of it. Like, you you get with somebody younger because it's easy to impress them. You've been around mm-hmm. the block, but that's the problem. You know, it's you're you're exactly. fooling a person. <laughs> Thousand percent. And ultimately, what he's doing is he's he's making her feel important. Like mm-hmm. nobody, I like I see that nobody in the world cares about you, but I see you. You know, right, right. Both girls got to a point where they stopped asking their fathers for things because they they felt like they were imposing. So Juan eventually got a job at uh, like a burger joint and every night they would cross their fingers that he would like bring home leftovers. Mm. Which also like it was all on him to support all three of them. One day John invited all the kids to go to the beach with him and they were super excited. They spent all day waiting for him, but he ended up showing up way too late. So they were completely disappointed and like mad at him. But he tells them, we can go tomorrow. I'll be here bright and early. But you know what? I've got some errands that I can run right now. Who wants to come? So, of course, they're like, fuck yeah, we've been like sitting at home bored all day. And they hop into his car and he starts driving them around Hollywood. The kids, remember, they just drove halfway across the country. No, they just drove all the way across the country from Florida. And they, nobody takes them anywhere. So they're absolutely mesmerized by Hollywood and like all the bright lights. And this is their first time really getting out of the house. As they're driving around, they notice a huge lit sign that read John C. Holmes, Triple X, Double Feature, Mitchell Brothers Autobiography of a Flea All Night Long. And then that's when reality set in for Dawn. She remembered all the posters and everything that Harriet had shown her, and it hits her. John's a porn star. He's Johnny fucking Wad. By now, pornography had become widely accepted, and it was actually kind of chic. Like, everybody was going to to the theaters to see porn. John was at the peak of his career. So he gave him a little tour of Hollywood and just like incidentally like happens to drive past the signs with his name on them, like no big deal. So John gave him their little tour of Hollywood and then he took them to the to the Hollywood Walk of Fame before he took them all home and he promised to pick them all up bright and early in the morning to head to the beach. In the morning, John picked up the kids for the beach, but on the way there, he told them that he needed to stop and pick up his messages from his answering service. So he stops and he gets the messages. And when he gets back in the car, he hands them over to Dawn, who's in the passenger seat. It's like a big stack of messages. And he asks her if she can please put them in his briefcase for him. 
And that made her feel kind of special. And that's up until she looked at the messages and she saw a woman's name and she got jealous. But instantly she told herself, like, snap out of it. Like, what the fuck? He's married and you're a child. Like, what are you even thinking? Terry was very uncomfortable to find out that John was a porn star. And she told Don that she that something fell off. She told Don, he's trying to get close to you. But Don said, I know Terry, but I can handle myself. So they park the car and they all start walking towards the beach. And when they get there, they realize that it's a nude beach. So John took these three teenagers to a nude beach. And Terry's pissed because, like, she was already trying to just, like, wear a t-shirt and shorts to the beach. So, like, now she's like, this is fucked up. John acts like it's no big deal and he just undresses. And Juan, he's trying to act like a cool grown-up guy. So he undresses just as quickly. It wasn't that just, like, the fucking cherry on top is bringing an 18-year-old there to try to keep up with him. So Dawn, in this moment, decided to, like, buckle down and just at least remove her shorts and her tank top so she's wearing her bathing suit. But Don, uh, but John was quick to say, you'll get tan lines. <laughs> Dawn was nervous, but she also kind of wanted to seem brave and mature. So she buckled down and she took off her swimsuit. So they all lay down, like face down, and they're sunbathing for a while. But Terry remained fully clothed and uncomfortable. <laughs> then John asked Don if she wants some lotion. She was nervous, but he was acting so casual that she's like, shit, maybe this is normal. So she said, yeah, sure. Trying to act cool. And she told herself, it's no big deal. John applied the lotion from her back to her legs, casually. And she tried to copy his casual attitude. And then he said to her, me too. And he tossed her the bottle of lotion. So she kind of robotically like does it. She puts on the lotion, but she was repulsed by this old guy's body. Like she's looking at him like this is an old guy. And like, yeah, he's 32. Like, I don't know. I, if I When I was 15, I could not imagine just rubbing lotion on a 32 year old guy's ass. But again, she's trying to act cool. So she just, she, she does it. She she doesn't want to give any impression of, like, being not mature enough for this. So they sunbathed for a little while longer, and John asked Dawn if she wanted to go over to this other area of the beach where they were doing body painting. So, again, like, she's trying to be, like, cool and be like, yeah, sure, but what she's really thinking is, like, holy shit, we're gonna stand up and, like, actually get a glimpse of each other's naked bodies. But she was trying to be brave, so they got up and they walked over and they got their bodies paint painted. And nobody questioned their age difference. They're just like, what would the happy couple like painted on their naked bodies today? Like, nobody even questions that there's a fucking child at the nude beach. So they get their bodies painted and they're both kind of like giggling like children. Like, they're both acting like, oh, this is so silly and like intimate, you know? <laughs> and then Juan sees them and like, from across the beach and he grabs a camera and he's like hey guys let's see a pose john swept dawn up into his arms and cradled her up against his body they're both naked and sorry and juan, juan snapped a picture john abruptly put her down and turned to walk into the ocean dawn was like why did he go into the water and juan was like i bet i know after this beach trip john would continue to invite the kids on errands and stuff he seemed to get excited when Don would get home from school and he would look for odd jobs and errands that they could do together because, remember, he would offer them work because they didn't have any fucking money or food. 
He would also take her to Hollywood and places where fans would come up to him and ask him for his autograph. And Don began to notice that John would act kind of angry or hurt if she came home late. Like, after school, if she would go, like, she finally started to make friends. And, like, if she stayed late to hang out, he would start to, like, pull back for, like, a few days. And he would just kind of, like, not treat her as warmly as usual. Like, at this point, he wasn't really cruel to her. He was just letting her know that he felt hurt. Which is very manipulative. Because, like, yeah. And, like, Dawn didn't have a lot of friends to begin with. So she was super, super lonely. And John made her feel like she mattered to him. Like, this was a relationship she had to value. And she didn't like making him feel like... She, she didn't like feeling like she hurt him. So one day, Dawn goes over to Terry's apartment. And Terry started grilling her about what she thinks about John, which is really weird because Terry didn't seem very fond of John at first. Terry told her, he's always over here and he's always asking about you. And Don was like, yeah, but he's too old. And then Terry says, he's really not that old, Don. And this is like shocking to, to Don. She's like, why this sudden change of heart? So then Don says, well, he's married. And Terry tells her, actually, it's not like that. They only live together, but they're just friends. He told me. So Dawn, like, sits for a second. She's totally caught off guard. And then she's like, all right, he's kind of cute. And he's really nice. And he's a lot of fun. Then John comes out. He was there eavesdropping the whole time. And he just comes over and he planted a big, intense kiss on Dawn's lips. As it turned out, John would kind of, like, um... He would come over and bring Terry frozen Snickers bars often. And he was kind of doing this to like get her to warm up to him and like start trusting him. And um, he kind of bribed her with a Snicker bar to, to get her to talk to Don. From then on, Don like really developed a crush on him. They started flirting heavily. And when John would go visit the girls, he would bring Don gifts like a rose or a new blouse or a giant stuffed animal. He would intentionally sit next to her and hold her hand and, like, open doors for her and kiss her hand. He was love-bombing her, and she was overwhelmed with the admiration that he was showering her with. Like, she went from, like, being neglected to this guy buying her roses and shit, you know? And he would tell her that she was beautiful and special. Like, she literally was overwhelmed. She's, she, she doesn't know what to feel right now, but... Their bond, their bond grows stronger, and they both seem to be anxious to be intimate with each other for the first time. Dawn is still a virgin at this point, but John has had sex with thousands of people. He's told a lot of tales about when he lost his virginity, but John's really, like, full of shit. He's, he's a big storyteller. He said that he lost his virginity to a childhood girlfriend when he was nine, and he also said that he lost it to a friend of his mother's at age 12. Either way, the fact of the matter is that he's way more experienced than Don is, and she probably has no idea what to expect. So one day, John asked Don if she wants to go to the beach with him alone. He told her, like, tell your dad that your sister and Juan are coming, but, like, they're plotting, they're plotting to get away just the two of them. And Don knows what this means, and she tells him yes. When they get to the beach, they get high together, and John asked her if she wanted to make love to him, and she said yes. And in Don's mind, she's thinking, he really likes me now. Don has no idea what she's supposed to feel. 
John got on top of her and he like completely covered her body with his body to the point where she was unable to move from underneath him. She whimpered and John whispered in her ear, trust me. And Don says she just closed her eyes and took the pain. Like, not only is this her first time having sex with anybody, like any anybody's penis the first time would be overwhelming. But it's 13 inches long and supposedly like the width of a forearm. Well, Don spent the next three days in bed writhing in pain and bleeding. Like she she was bleeding, or sorry, <laughs> bleeding when she peed. Like she told her dad that she had cramps and she couldn't go to school, but Harriet actually was the one who could tell something was off because she became ice cold with John after that. And she was actually the one who took Don to the doctor. It turned out that Don had a bladder infection and they prescribed her antibiotics. After a few days, John brought her a big giant teddy bear and a ring with her birthstone and she absolutely melted. She thought it was so thoughtful and special, like nobody had ever given her jewelry before. It was proof that he liked her, you know, she was special to him. So while she was hesitant at first, she immediately took this as, as like, I forgive him. He didn't mean any harm. Like he loves me. The pair continued a romantic relationship and John would call her beautiful and he would constantly make her feel special and loved. In her book, uh, by the way, that's the other source that I used for this episode. Um, Don Schiller wrote an, an autobiography called Road Through Wonderland. And in her book, Don said, I don't tell him that I'm scared when we're together like that. And I get good at hiding the pain. That's so sad. Don fell in love with John and she believed that he loved her too. She started to feel like she needed him and his love and she couldn't live without it. One day, Don was hanging out at Terry's house when they heard John and Sharon fighting in their home and like glass was shattering and John was heard yelling, Sharon, Sharon, stop, followed by like loud crashing and like Sharon screaming back at him. Like she was like, John, enough. And then the door slammed and Sharon stormed out, got in her car and just furiously drove away. And Terry and Don are like listening from their apartment and they're just like super confused, have no idea what's going on. According to Sharon and like, they knew Sharon, but Sharon was always very stoic and collected. Like she was very good at like processing her, her emotions to herself and like not exploding. So according to Sharon, she and John only ever had two big fights. The first was a time when they got into an argument and John like put up his fist and then he paused and he punched a hole in the wall. So Sharon told him that if he ever did that again, he might wake up with a skull fracture from a frying pan. And John seemed like he might have legitimately been afraid of Sharon. Like, he respected the hell out of her. And the second time that Sharon got into a, a big argument with John was after Don started living in the apartments. Apparently, Harriet told Sharon that John was spending a little bit too much time with the girls and she should do something about it. And I'm wondering if this was, like, around the same time as the bladder infection. So Sharon, I guess, went to John and she didn't even like accuse him. She just told him something like, hey, I don't know what was perceived or whatever, but somebody made a complaint about this, like apartment manager to apartment manager. And John was extremely defensive and started yelling at Sharon, which was like totally out of character. He had never raised his voice to her. So Sharon was like, the fuck is this? And like, she says that her temper got the best of her. And she took a 200-pound bookcase and threw it across the room where it broke everything, like, on his desk. And, like, 
gave him a black eye and cut his head in the process. John was in shock. So Don and Terry are listening from their apartment and Donna's just panicking, thinking Sharon must know about us. And above all, she's going to call the cops. She's just terrified. So John disappeared for a day or so and Don's just left alone wondering what happened, which just made her more and more nervous. Well, John was out looking for Sharon and he ended up finding her at a mall. She went to a mall, just walked around fuming for a couple hours and then she was like, okay, I'm ready to go home. At this point, Sharon still didn't know the extent of the relationship between John and Don. And Don truly didn't understand the relationship that John had with Sharon either. Sharon treated Don the same way that she would have treated any of the other tenants. At first, anyway. Around this time, Don's father informed her that he found a new place to live in Riverside and Pensy was flying out to be with them. But, he said, Harriet doesn't know, so don't say anything. He straight up was like, I told Harriet that you want to go back to Florida to be with your mom, and now I have to take you. So Don was like, well, what about Terry? And her dad literally shrugged and was like, well, she's with Juan now. She made her decision before we left Florida. Which, to, to me, is like, why the fuck did you even bring her to California? Like, he just brought her to California just to drop her off and be like, see ya. I'm going home. Yeah. But apparently he did tell Terry that they were leaving and Terry and Juan ended up on their own making their way back to California or back to Florida. So now Dawn is stuck. She, I mean, she has to go to River to Riverside to live with her dad, but the entire time she misses the hell out of John. And like, from what we know about Wayne, she probably wasn't being very loved or cared for, for uh, with her father. So I'm betting that made her, like, notice the absence of John even more. So after a few weeks, Wayne decides, like, you know what, Don, we're just going to move back to Florida. And Don's heartbroken. Like, she cannot be that far away from John. So she gets in contact with David and David's wife to pick her up, and they're going to let her stay with them for a while until a new apartment opens up. But that means that Don would pretty much be on her own. She'd have to get a job and, like, be able to pay for her own apartment. Like, no more parents. So she tells her dad that she doesn't want to go back to Florida. She wants to go back to Glendale and live on her own. And he told her, okay, if that's what you want, Don, more power to you. This guy's father of the fucking year. And like, he knew that she was staying to be with John. There's no way he just assumed she wanted to stay in Glendale and be all by herself. Don ended up dropping out of school and getting a job at a hospital. She rented one of the apartments from Sharon and John, but it wasn't so much of it wasn't so much an apartment as it was like a hallway between two garages, but it had a bathroom and a shower and of course Don is 15 and she felt really proud like she was on her own. Sharon was really kind to Don, like she could see that Don was bone thin and had nobody, so she would intentionally make extra food for dinner and bring it over to Don, which eventually turned into inviting Don to come over to her and John's home to eat. Again, I don't think Sharon knew that Dawn was, like, her husband's side chick. I think she just saw a 15-year-old girl who was on her own and hungry and had nobody. So I think she took her in and, like, cared for her like her own daughter. And, like, Sharon's a nurse. I think that's her instinct. Sharon and Dawn became friends, and they started enjoying each other's company. And John was happy about it because that meant that if Dawn was hanging out with Sharon, he knew where she was at all times. Whenever Don was at school or at work, he would often accuse her of cheating on him. And Sharon kind of took Don under her wing. 
She was the one who encouraged Dawn to apply it for the job at the hospital. And she also passed on some medical knowledge. She passed on some old scrubs and things that she could use for work. She also taught her how to do things around the house, like how to cook. And she made sure that Dawn took care of her. She made sure that John helped to take care of her. I think this is another reason that she couldn't tell that John and Dawn had a relationship. I think in Sharon's eyes, Dawn needed help. So just as Sharon was taking her in as a daughter, I think she assumed that John was doing the same thing. Like John wasn't paying extra attention to her. He was just trying to be a father figure to this girl who needed one. Dawn had to walk really far to get to work and Sharon convinced John to buy her a bike so that she wouldn't have to walk anymore. They also got her like a little chihuahua puppy to keep her company and she named him Thor. Dawn ended up hanging out at their house a lot and they ended up inviting her to move into their spare bedroom. And this worked out for them because like John was out late working all the time. So Sharon and Dawn liked to keep each other company. And also because this was the late seventies in California, there was high anxiety about serial killers that were active in the area, like the Hillside Strangler, the Trash Bag Murderer, the Golden State Killer. So I imagine that these two women found comfort in being together. Absolutely. So Sharon was teaching Dawn how to do grown-up things around the house, and she was also little by little teaching her how to take care of John. But it's kind of under the guise because John is a celebrity, so somebody has to like do his filing, and like she... It seems like Sharon thinks she's teaching Don how to be an assistant. Because remember, John would try to find little jobs for Don to do, like gardening and stuff like that, because she mm -hmm. needed money. So it seems like Sharon thought that that's what she was doing. So I wonder, at any point prior to her actually finding out, did Sharon ever think that there was something going on? Or did both Don and John keep it like in the hiding when she was present. You know what I mean? Like, I wonder how that was prior to her knowledge of knowing what was going on. Well, according to Dawn's book for a long time, like especially when they first um, let her move in, John constantly told her like, we need to be respectful to Sharon because even though she and I aren't together, she's not gonna like it if we're flaunting it in her face, you know? Mm -hmm. And Dawn was really young. So she was like, the fuck do I know? And, like, she didn't yeah. understand their relationship. Well, yeah, and she's, like, 15, so how could she? She's still a kid. Yeah, that's the that's the problem with dating somebody that young. Not just, like, chronologically young, but emotionally young. Like, Absolutely. You, you can just convince them this is how relationships are, you know? And I feel like right. even with Sharon, she was a grown woman, and I feel like... John telling her, oh, you're so uptight. That was kind of his way of being like, hey, like, get with the times, man, you know? Mm-hmm. I get that. But yeah, so she's, like, teaching Dawn how to do all this stuff. And later on, she realizes in retrospect, like, John was kind of having her train her replacement. Isn't that weird? I think that's so weird. Like, it's because... not just the person I'm going to have sex with and love for the rest of my life, but she's got to learn how to do my taxes and, like, respond to my, my phone calls and shit, you know? That's so weird. <laughs> I mean, I don't know weird. what I don't know what he was thinking. Sharon said that by 1978, she figured out that she and Don were both having separate relationships with John. And, like, once she figured it out, she tried to show Don that John was nothing special, although it was really clear that Don would do anything for him. Like, I think by the time Sharon figured it out, it was too late and there was just no convincing Dawn. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, I think in a way she probably also felt so abandoned by her dad and family 
that the only person that really was there was John and obviously as well as Sharon, but more so John in that sense, you know? Well, yeah, exactly. John was the one that was like telling her that she was special all the time. And like he eventually convinced her that Sharon didn't care about her. And like by 1978, like that was only like two years into the relationship, but that's two years. Like Dawn's still only 17, you know, like she still can't legally do a lot of things mm -hmm. by herself. And she's still, she's been two years or like at least a year and a half without her family, you know? Mm -hmm. So I bet it was easy to convince her that like she legitimately needed him to survive. Yeah. So while Don and Sharon were at home, John would have numerous affairs. Most notable was a girl named Julia St. Vincent, who was a 17-year-old girl who started dating John around 1977. Julia was a porn star. At 17 so, years old? Yeah. So Julia said that John would stay the night at her house every night and every morning around three or four in the morning, she would get up or he would get up and go home. So like he was literally spending the nights with this girl and then going home to Sharon and Don. And like they so. thought he was at work. Oh my God. John and Julia did acid together once and John secretly put extra acid in her food. So she didn't know she had taken as much as she did. And then he would spoon feed her food to her which I guess was something he enjoyed doing with anything, like with foods or drugs or anything. He just liked spoon feeding her. And she said that he was like toying with her. And she actually said that she looked up to him like a fatherly figure. And I think that's one creepy thing about John is like his yeah. pedophilia or uh, a phoebophilia. Like, so those are the terms that people always argue. Pedophilia technically is like kids who are before puberty. And, like, then there's hebophilia, which is, like, during puberty. And then there's aphebophilia, which is, like, ages 15 to 19. So, technically... That's fucking gross. Right. But the reason I say that is, like, I have a lot of people who, like, argue with me about, like, how, like, what is the magic age? And it's like, well, no, we have these terms because psychologically, like, they're in different places, you know? Mm -hmm. I think but that's anyway, so crazy that they have different, like, sectors or sections of these, like, pedophilia people like it's so fucking weird mm -hmm. so he liked being like a fatherly figure <laughs> in treating these girls like his little girls oh my god that's so weird so julia said that after he got her really really fucked up on acid and like way more fucked up than he was he started messing with her head and talking about god and the stars and, and things that really confused her so here's a quote from julia she said on acid you take things literally you believe whatever. It's like being in a hypnotic spell. And then he got up and he got mad and he said, don't you know who I am? And Julia says, I took that to mean he's like God or something. And I think he was just trying to tell me I'm just a guy. Like he was trying to tell her the opposite. But she says it was bad timing. So it ended up fucking with my head. And then he did some weird shit. We're talking psychopathic. He told me that I wouldn't remember a thing about what I just heard. And he told me that if I did, he wouldn't believe me. So this is something that wasn't in Don's book, but it was in the other book I read. And according to Julia, Don actually found out about her affair with John. And the two of them tried to confront John about it, which seems really dumb to me. But I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know. You never know in that situation. Old. Yeah, they're, you're right. They're both 17 years old. So Don went to Julia's house and she talked to julia and they decided they were going to confront john and don went and hid in the bathroom and they were going to like ambush him so he presumably like 
got back and he got mad and he took Dawn home and we can assume that he got mad at her and probably abused her. But then they came back to Julia's place a couple days later and they asked if they could stay with her. And Julia actually had money. Like, she came from a family of money and she's like, in retrospect, yeah, they were like mooching, but it was, you know, a time of like we were helping each other. And I guess Dawn kind of initiated a little relationship with Julia. And the way Julia describes it is like Dawn knew exactly what she was doing. She like took her into a room and started making the moves. And what that sounded like to me was John pimping her out. John's told her how to do this. Like John, the porn star has directed her and what to do because it doesn't even sound it. Like it sounds um, the way Julia describes it almost sounds like she knew exactly what she was doing too much. The way Dawn writes in her book, she was completely devoted to John and she didn't want to hook up with anybody else. So this whole little, like, situationship between the three of them lasted until one day Julia came home and she found her house destroyed and John and Don had abandoned her. They just, like, looted her place and left. That's real mature. <laughs> so Julia would actually later go on to create a documentary called Exhausted John C. Holmes, The Real Story. And the, the documentary shows a lot of clips of John being interviewed just completely faded off of freebasing cocaine. So here's a little description for Exhausted. Exhausted is a self-serving softball documentary about John C. Holmes, who was the biggest star in the adult film industry in two ways. He was the most famous and he was just the biggest where it really counts. He was the most famous and he was just the biggest where it really counts in that business, about 13 inches worth. So it's believed that John began using cocaine around 1975 or 1976. He was having trouble maintaining his energy levels and he felt like he, it helped him perform better on set. Even Sharon said that at night he was like having a hard time sleeping and then when he was awake he was having a hard time like catching up on his energy. So he started using cocaine and he felt like it helped him perform better on set. And I think a lot of porn stars probably feel that way. He ended up getting Don hooked on cocaine too. By 1978 John was heavily addicted and he was freebasing cocaine regularly which freebasing is where you like cook it into a rock and smoke it through a pipe and it's super potent. And I guess it's not the same as like making crack rocks. Like one of them uses like ether and the other using is like baking soda. Mm -hmm. And I guess the baking soda is like much cheaper, but eventually John would do both. (sighs) Fuck. Oh, and it's also like super potent. So you're like, turning this powder into a rock and then you're smoking it through a pipe Uh, and the thing is they say that the effects like yeah they hit you really hard but they only last like 15 to 30 minutes or at least that's with freebasing i don't know about the crack but so the thing about freebasing was it hit really really hard but it was just throwing away your money like because when you cook it up it's just it turns into like this little rock and you take like one or two little hits from it you know Mm -hmm. so it disappears it's just like literally you're burning up your money And at this point, John was an international porn star. The problem was that his drug use was getting more and more in the way of his work. So, like, for one, he never had any money and he would be, like, borrowing money for everything. And people could see him just, like, disintegrating. Like, he looked like he was on drugs, like he needed sleep and nutrients. And he gained a reputation for spending a lot of time in the bathroom doing drugs and also for, like, rummaging through people's shit like through their drawers like people knew on set not to leave shit out in front of john what a loser though to do that to somebody like come on dude exactly and And then 
But one thing he's supposed to be doing, he's like spending the entire time in the bathroom. Like, can you imagine just being how fucking annoying? I would be so annoyed. And also, John ended up having a hard time because like, well, he had a hard time getting hard, basically. His he his dick wouldn't work eventually, which is an effect of the cocaine. And it's like my brother, like, mm-hmm. if you can't do that, what they don't need you around anymore, you know? Yeah. yeah. So pretty soon John was just like this big goofy cokehead with an afro and a big dick he was like a party trick so people would see him on an elevator and be like you're john holmes can i see your dick (laughs) one day a producer got fed up with him um because he just wouldn't get off the drugs and he was really sick of it and john was like you can't make me stop and the guy was like well then fucking leave and that was it that was the end of john's job if you if your job is to do that and you can't do that then it's not your job like bye now, as bad as a person as John already was, the cocaine really kicked him into high gear. He started beating the shit out of Dawn, and he started pimping her out for drug money. He also constantly told her that her family abandoned her because they didn't care about her. So anytime she thought about leaving him, she legitimately thought that she had nowhere to go. So by now, Dawn is 17 years old. And just so you know, Dawn and John would be together for about five and a half years. That's crazy. Dawn started noticing things like jewelry and gifts that John gave her. They were going missing. Sharon's things also started going missing. And it turned out that John was taking them and selling them for money to buy cocaine. Or at least that's how he started. He ended up being like a kleptomaniac. Like he just couldn't control himself whenever he saw something worth stealing. John had charged $48,000 onto his and Sharon's credit cards to televisions and jewelry and just any kind of shit that he could sell for drug money. And anywhere he went in parking lots and stuff, he would start like looking into cars and like seeing if there was anything he could like sneak into and steal. At first, John was really careful about his abuse towards Dawn so that people wouldn't catch on like not just to the to the abuse, but to the relationship, especially with Sharon. So, one day he waited until Sharon was asleep cuz remember they all live together now. And he started abusing Dawn. And Don tried to escape him. Like, she le- legitimately thought he was going to kill her. So she ran and locked herself in the bathroom. And she's thinking, like, he wouldn't dare wake up Sharon with all this noise, you know. But then he starts banging on the doors. Like, he's beating the door. And she can see that it's, like, coming off its hinges. And she legitimately thinks he's going to kill her. So she starts looking around in the bathroom. And she found a bottle of pills. And she just drank the entire thing, thinking, like... This is my only way out. She didn't want to get beaten to death. Oh, my God. Eventually, John broke the door down, and he made her vomit. Like, just as she... Like, she described that she started feeling herself fade away. And that's when he made her throw up, and she kind of started coming back. So, he saved her, and then... When she woke up, Sharon was, like, taking care of her, and she was pissed. Like... And Don was like, oh, what the fuck? Sharon's my only savior right now. What is going on? I need her. And so we have no idea what John said to her. Like, and imagine in Don's position. She has no idea what just happened. But Sharon's pissed. She didn't know if she, like, f- found out about the relationship or, if, you know, what happened. But it turned out that Sharon wrote Don a letter telling her that as a nurse, she just couldn't believe that Don would value her life so little to try to end it. And she was offended. And then John convinced Don that, like, you fucked up now. Sharon doesn't want anything to do with you, and it's all your fault. So this whole situation causes a lot of of tension with the three of them, and I'm not really sure if 
at this point, Sharon really knew the extent of the relationship because for years, Sharon continues to say that she didn't know John and Don were were romantically together. But Don says in her book that she had to know by this point. Maybe she might not have known or maybe she just thought about it because I feel like in a weird way, Sharon was trying to like look the other way and not know anything. You know what I mean? Maybe at that time. I don't know. Mm -hmm. She just seems like that type of person. And not just that. I'm sure it wasn't just her. I'm sure John was telling her, like, how could you how could you say that about me? How could you ask? Totally trying to gaslight her as well. And that's the thing. She loved him. And I think sometimes like, what, is she supposed to be guilty for loving him? You know, like she probably feels bad for believing him. But I mean, it's not her fault either. Mm -hmm. So this whole thing causes a lot of tension between the three of them and basically John and Don end up moving out. I don't know if Sharon kicked uh, John out or what, but they end up moving out and pretty much Don and John start living in their car, which I'm thinking was Sharon's car. <laughs> they took Sharon's car and start living in it. And when they can, they stay in a motel for a couple days and they just mm-hmm. like, that's that's their life. They go from the car to the motel and they pick up drugs and then they go back to the motel. So after this whole thing, <laughs> because Don tried to take her own life, John wouldn't let her out of his sight. So, like, for a little while, he helped his brother David open up a little shop because David was, like, a locksmith or something. And uh, John forced Don to work in it. But this is funny because he would tell Don, like, hey, I need you to keep an eye on things because I can't trust my brother. You know, my brother is irresponsible. He's a drug addict and shit. But he would tell his brother David, like, keep an eye on Don and let me know if she talks to anybody or if she goes anywhere. So, like, have, like, secret eyes on her? Yeah. That's crazy. That is, poor thing. Yeah, well, she she legitimately didn't talk to anybody. She didn't have anybody or know she anybody. She was completely isolated, and Sharon was really her only person at that time. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, John was there, but for, like, that personal, like, girl thing, I think it was her. Well, and he's leaving her to go fuck other girls. What a loser. So, yeah, like, Don would go out to lunch and he would be like, you fucked the cashier, didn't you? It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Who do- who would do that, you know? Oh, my God. It was ridiculous. And every time he accused her of something, he would beat the shit out of her. There was no way to convince him that he was wrong. So one day he just, he had a big temper tantrum and he destroyed all these journals where she had written poetry. And, like, she actually wrote a bunch of poems for her father and for John. Because she was desperately in love with John. That's the bottom line that she was like, how could you even think that I would do that to you? But John, he found all these journals and assumed that they were all for another guy. And even though she doesn't fucking know a single person, she's not allowed to talk to anybody. He like made up in his mind that she must be writing about somebody else. That somehow she had the secret relationship to the point where she's completely in love and writing poetry about him. How delusional. Uh, He's crazy. But anyway... John knew when Don loved something and he would intentionally take that thing and destroy it. And remember the same thing happened to Linda Lovelace. Mm-hmm. I, feel, I still feel bad for that woman. Me too. One day, John and Don got caught with drugs at a motel and John got arrested. Don was terrified. And John tells her to call up a guy named Eddie Nash to bail him out. Now, Uh-oh. yeah, um, Don only knew Eddie Nash as a bad fucking guy, and Don told her she wasn't to fuck with him. Like, 
we're not even going to tell Nash that you exist because we're going to keep you safe. And that's all that Dawn knew from about him. So she's now he's telling her to fucking call the guy and she's terrified. Mm-hmm. So Eddie Nash was a drug trafficker and a business owner who allegedly had ties to politicians, the police, the Hell's Angels, and also the mob. He was the owner of a bunch of clubs in Los Angeles, like a lot of big clubs, like the Starwood, the Seven Seas, Alibaba's, the Sold Out, uh, the Odyssey. He opened up clubs like for gay people, for black people. Like he, he found the gap in the marketplace and he filled that gap, you know. The guy had money and he also had a lot of places to traffic his drugs. I wonder if he had some connection that got him all those clubs. You know what I mean? Like how he got into that. Well, it's said that his family actually owned clubs in um, Palestine. So oh, like he, he didn't come from he didn't come from a poor family. He opened up like a little hot dog stand and I guess it just like supposedly it just blew up. But there are theories that he had ties to the Corsican French mafia. Oh, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And according to the feds, they think he's responsible for the China white epidemic. Oh, wow. And it makes sense because he was the way he was trafficking them through all his clubs, like he was getting them through mm-hmm. everybody. And we'll find out later that there's a guy named Scott Thorson, who was the little lover boy of Liberace, where like they had actually like Scott and Liberace had made a plan to buy or to get into the business of owning clubs. And mm-hmm. like Scott Thorson was the perfect middleman to get the good drugs to celebrities. Anyway, there's a lot of big theories about this guy, Nash, basically. Like, that's that's how scary the guy is. There's a theory that he was um, somehow involved in the murder of uh, Robert Kennedy. No because, way. Yeah, because he was murdered by a guy named um, Sirhan Sirhan. And the theory is that it was because the Kennedys were trying to put an end to the Vietnam War, which would put an end to the trafficking of the drugs coming from from overseas, like China White. That's so crazy. the theory is that Eddie Nash either was behind it and organized it or like there's I found a whole like thread where this guy, this historian, like actually theorizes that he he was like there. He was there and orchestrating it. That is crazy. Oh, my God. I mean, like Go I said, these are big side. theories, but but that's how scary the, the guy is. You know, he no, has totally. ties to everybody. It- and supposedly the police were even like the police said that things were never antagonistic with Eddie Nash. Like they had dinners with him and like, you know what I mean? This was a scary guy. Mm-hmm. And John this whole time had been keeping Dawn a secret. Like he always told her that he was trying to protect her, but I don't think he was trying to protect anybody. He was just this was like insurance. He had something special that he could like when he ran out of things to sell now he has Don. Like, this yeah. was his thing of value. That's gross. And on another hand, I think if nobody knew that she existed, he could do whatever he wanted to her. Like, if she ceased to exist, nobody would know. Mm-hmm. And Nash, so, Eddie Nash was a vile human being. He would invite people to his house and he would have them wait in a room full of drugs and jewelry and shit that would be, like, easily accessible, like, out in the open. And he would just leave them there for, like, hours waiting for him. And... The thing is, he had, like, two-way mirrors, so he would watch them and wait and see if they stole anything. That's crazy. He was also said to sometimes go to the bathroom and take a shit, and he would intentionally not wipe himself. And then he would offer drugs to women who were over at his house in exchange for licking his asshole clean. That is absolutely unacceptable. That is gross. Mm Mm-hmm. This guy is disgusting. Uh -uh. Uh Uh-uh. Uh-uh. 
Um, so at all these clubs that he owned, he would often require his dancers to give him oral sex in order to prove that they weren't cops. Mm, God, he's gross. I know. The worst. He's so manipulative. What an asshole. I mean, he's just an asshole. Yeah, this should be called the Book of Assholes. <laughs> right. Every, everybody sucks. Everybody sucks in the 70s. <laughs> everybody. Eddie Nash was also heavily addicted to freebasing cocaine. And he also did a lot of speedballs, which is where you would mix it with heroin. Which is just so wild. He was, like He was ready. Eddie and John met at one of Eddie's clubs, and he was impressed because of John's celebrity. John would introduce him to other porn stars, so like he would let John come over to his big fancy house, and he would share drugs with him. And mm -hmm. they were buddies, and Eddie called John brother. Like, this is my brother. So Dawn had been outside of Eddie's house before because John would take her to pick up drugs. And like he would go inside for hours, but he would make her and her little dog like hide under a blanket in the front seat. And like she oh it's so sad. Gosh. She even explains how like she had to learn how to breathe a certain way to not fog up the windows of the car because like she was terrified. She was like, if anybody sees me, they'll literally dump me in the desert because that's what John told her. Like, God. he told her to stay quiet and not make her presence known. That's crazy. Poor thing. Right, so now John's in jail, and she's by her fucking self. She doesn't have any money. She's, like, her and her dog and like, a duffel bag. And he's like, call Eddie Nash. And she's like, what? So, she doesn't know what to do. She figures it out. She finds his number, and she calls Eddie, and he does, in fact, get John out of jail. But once John is out of jail... He constantly reminds Don that now they owe Eddie. And he says this to justify John doing more, like, drug runs and just disappearing all the time. And also because he wants to pimp her out. Eddie basically says, who was that girl on the phone? I want to meet her. And John's like, sorry, I can't get out of it. So this is terrifying for Don. John is like, okay, so... He doesn't know anything about you. I told him that you're my niece and your name is Gabrielle and you go to college in Oregon or something and you've never done drugs before. So if he offers you drugs, you've got to look like you've never done it before. And she's a nervous wreck. Like, what if I fuck up? And sure mm -hmm. enough, like, she's overly conscious and he hands her a pipe, like, um, a speed pipe to freebase and she's got to act like she's never done it before. And she's like, fuck, I acted too comfortable. And he makes a comment like, oh, this isn't your first time. So the next day, um, John picks her up and Eddie only gives him half the money. So John knows that it's because she must not have done a good job. And he beats the shit out of her. And Dawn's thinking like, I could have ended up in the desert. Like she's trying so hard, but she also has no power to fight John. She has absolutely nothing. He beats her so badly and so often enough that he's broken her ribs before and he's often made her black out. One time he pinned her to the ground and he stuck his thumbs into the corner of her eyes and he told her that he was going to pluck them out. Oh my god. And remember, this guy's like over six feet tall. She's, she's still only like 17, 18 here. She straight up thinks he's going to kill her. So one day she escapes him and she's only wearing like a nightshirt and sandals and she runs into a 7-Eleven. She's freaking out. And she runs behind the counter, like, or the guy behind the counter. She's hiding behind him and she's crying, like, help me. He's going to kill me. He's after me. And there's a, a couple at the store, too. 
like a young couple and them and the clerk are all looking at each other like what the fuck is going on and they look in the parking lot and they can see john like crouching behind a car like hiding and waiting for her to come out and they're like what the fuck is happening so they somehow sneak out through the back and like create a barricade around her and sneak her into this couple's car and that couple was nice enough to like be like okay where do we take you and she's like, seriously, where do you take me? I have no idea. So she asked them to take her to Sharon's house. She's like, I have nowhere else to go. And mm-hmm. she gets a little bit of hope. You know, Sharon's a nurse. She's going to help me. And she gets there and they're, and she's like, okay, thank you. You can go. I'm good here. And they're like, are you sure? She's like, yeah, my friend's going to take care of me. And they leave. And she knocks on the door and Sharon doesn't open it. And I don't know if Sharon's not home or if she was just still mad or what. But Sharon didn't open it. And... Dawn just like knocks and knocks and knocks but like I said she's just wearing like a shirt and it's really cold outside she starts freezing and eventually she starts thinking like what the fuck am I doing like what if John was right and she doesn't want me here like she's not gonna help me so she gives up and she's like I have to go back to John like can you imagine she's standing out in the cold in in a night shirt and sandals like just knocking on this door so absolutely defeated she just accepted that she has to go back to her abuser because she won't survive without him so she starts walking back to the main road and decides to hitchhike she gets listen to this dude she gets picked up by a hispanic guy in a cream colored chrysler he's kind of drunk like talking and slurring and he offers to give her the ride but instantly, like, they're talking, and she gets the vibe that he doesn't like her. Once they get to the freeway, she sees that he's not taking her where she asked him to. Oh, my God. So, I'm guessing that by now, Dawn is really good at sensing when she's in danger. So, she she's just kind of looking around at where they're going, and she's like, this isn't right. And she puts her hand, like, on the door lock so that if he locks it, she's holding onto it, and it doesn't lock. Sure enough... He does try to lock her in. So she asks him where they're going, and that's when he grabbed her throat and told her to shut up. And she looked into his eyes, and she just saw this dark look, and she thought, he doesn't want to just hurt me or rape me. He wants to kill me. So she begs for her life, and she's like, please, I'll do anything you want, anything you want, hoping he'll stop the car. Like, I'm thinking what she's doing is offering sexual favors. Mm -hmm. And eventually, he does stop the car and he thinks he has her trapped so she manages to open the door and jump out and she starts running and she runs as fast as she can down the road and when she looks back and this guy is chasing after her down the road oh my god desperately she runs in front of a car like and it's this elderly couple and she's just like freaking out and she tells them like this guy is chasing me and they look and they can see the guy chasing her so they let her in and they're like well hurry it up (laughs) get in you know yeah. So the couple, super nice, they take her to the police station and all of them make a report. And then the police asked Don where they can take her. And since she has no family nearby, she asked them to take her back to John. And they take her back to the motel where she was staying with him. And the police tell him everything. Like they tell her she was abducted and she could have been killed. So John thanked them. And then he and Don went inside. As soon as Don opened her mouth to speak to him, He scalded her to shut up and started striking her over and over again. He said to her, you were asking for it, weren't you? You wanted him to rape you, you little whore. Don's little chihuahua Thor started growling at John 
And, like, he tried to stand up for her and protect her and, like, get in the middle of them. And John basically smacked the dog and flung it across the room into a wall. Did he kill the dog? No. No, he didn't kill the dog. Oh, my God. I think the dog truly loved him. And then this was a moment where he became scared of him. So Thor kind of fell on the floor and melted into a little puddle. And John is kicking the shit out of Dawn. And she falls into a little puddle next to Thor. And he just kicked and kicked and kicked until her ribs broke. The day that Dawn had spent the night with Eddie Nash, that was on Christmas Day. So now, like, three or four days later, it's um, the day that John's going to take her back to make up for it. So she's got to try again, and it's also her birthday. So, yeah, Dawn, like, life is not just shitty for her. It's getting really scary and dangerous, and she's just, it's not her own anymore, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So one day she tries to be straight up with John and she thinks he's in a good mood. So she thinks she can tell him, I want to try calling my mom and I want to see if she'll let me go back home. She pleads with him and she tells him, I can't go with you anymore. She can't sell herself anymore. She doesn't want to be on these drug runs anymore. She just doesn't want this life anymore. So this is in public, like in a parking lot. So John, he's like, okay, he acts like he's being understanding and he puts his arm around her. But really, he's, like, silently scanning the parking lot to make sure nobody's looking at them. And then he opens his trunk, and he puts his hand over her mouth, and he sticks her in the trunk of the car and shuts the door. Oh, my God. What a crazy motherfucker. Yeah. So, of course, she's freaking out. She's in the back of this trunk, and she finds a little hole to breathe through, and she's just, like, screaming for him to, like, let her out of the car. She's poor thing. Finally, Mm -hmm. the car stops, and he lets her out of the trunk, and he tells her to relax and be quiet. So she agrees, and now she's just, she's submitting to him. Like, what else is she going to do? So he lets her out of the trunk, and they're at an apartment of this woman named Michelle. Michelle and John started doing drugs together, um, often in the bathroom of her home. That's, like, John's thing. He always did it in the bathroom. But John tells Michelle that Dawn needs a place to stay, and she's willing to work for it. He doesn't say both of them. He says just Dawn. Michelle is, like, not super willing to help, but it seems that John is bringing her drugs. So she reluctantly allows Don to stay with her. And as soon as John leaves, Don realizes that when he said that she would work to earn her stay, what he meant is that she would perform sex work. So basically, Michelle's apartment is her own little brothel. And now Michelle has her own little employee to work for her. Oh, no. So Don is now living at this woman's apartment, and it's clear that she's not welcome. Like, Michelle tells her not to touch anything, and she's like, don't eat anything while I'm not looking. So Don... She clearly feels like she's imposing and, like, she's not allowed to eat anything. Like, she she doesn't know what to do. John only comes by every few days. And when he does, mm-hmm. he barely even looks at Dawn. He, like, walks right past her, goes straight to the bathroom. He barely pays her any mind. Mm-hmm. And also, over the days, Michelle's things go missing and Michelle starts accusing Dawn of stealing them. Like, Dawn can't do anything right at this point. She's constantly getting into trouble. But at the same time, it's like, why would Dawn be stealing her shit? Like, where would she be putting it? She can't leave this apartment, you know? She doesn't have her own room or anything. Eventually, Dawn actually sees John putting things in his pockets at her house. Like, John's the one stealing Michelle's shit. And I'll bet if she had noticed it before that... She, he would put it on Don being like, I bet Don did it. And he's the son of a bitch doing it the whole time. I bet you anything. Exactly. So one day, Don manages to sneak a phone call when Michelle leaves the house. And she calls her mom and she begs for a bus ticket to Oregon where 
That's where her mom and her siblings are now living. And now remember, up until this point, Dawn was thinking that this is a long shot because John really convinced her that her mom and her family didn't give a shit about her anymore. So she thought she was going to have to beg them for a place to stay. And it turned out that her mom was relieved. She was like, of course you can come home. Where do you want me to send the bus ticket? Yeah. Now Dawn has the bus ticket, but she still has to find a way to get to the bus station. So that same evening, John and Michelle took Dawn with them to somewhere that was like, it was like some luxury apartment complex, of course. Like, Dawn doesn't ever know where what's going on. She, nobody tells her anything. She's just kind of along for the ride. But it seems mm-hmm. like um, this place where they went, maybe Michelle had a client there waiting for her. You know, like a sex work client. As they're leaving, they get stopped by security who insisted on searching their car. And it turned out that John stole a whole ass computer. Or I, oh I read in a newspaper, it might have been because it was the fucking 70s it might have been just like an ibm typewriter but either way it's something fucking huge Mm -hmm. so the three of them get arrested all three of them in the jail cell michelle and don are there together and michelle's just pissed at her of course and michelle straight up tells don that eddie's gonna bail her and john out but not you because you're a little thief and don's like what the fuck am I going to do in jail? I'm not going to survive in jail. So at this point, she breaks down and she's like, I didn't steal from you. It wasn't me. It was John. And she threw him under the bus completely. Michelle's pissed, but she is starting to feel like somebody pulled the wool over her, her eyes. So she tells Don, you better not be fucking with me. But it doesn't like do anything to calm the tension between them. Eddie Nash ended up bailing them all out of jail. All three of them. And Dawn was relieved because for a brief moment, she's like, who? I don't have to go to jail now. But then she realizes she's going to go back to Michelle's house. And Michelle's going to tell John what Dawn said. And she's like, he's going to kill me. Well, when they get back to Michelle's apartment, John and Dawn go straight to the bathroom. Normally, this is where they went and did their drugs. But this time, they went in there to argue. And then Michelle stormed out saying that she had an appointment and she got into her car and just like went off. At that moment, Dawn noticed that they had left the sliding glass door open and they never left it open. So she hyper focuses on it and realizes this might be my way out. John decided at that moment to take a bath and he asked Dawn if she would fetch him a cup of coffee. And she's like, sure. So she goes in the coffee and in the kitchen and she acts like she's making the coffee And she's still looking at this door, and then she decides to go for it. She bolts out the door, and she runs, and she sees a Denny's nearby. So she goes to the Denny's, and she finds a payphone, and she tries to make a collect call, but it's not going through. She realizes, fuck, I need money. So she goes to an elderly man that's sitting by himself at the Denny's, and she asks him for a quarter, and she explains to him that she's running away from her abusive boyfriend, and she needs a quarter to call her mom to see if her mom can send her a bus ticket so the old man he was really kind and he said here's a quarter go call your mom and when you're done come back and have a bowl of chili with me like remember she probably looked hungry she was emaciated like nobody fed this girl well yeah and she's also doing a shit ton of drugs yeah, that too. And she's been starving since she was like 15. So she called the bus station and her mom did leave her a bus ticket, but it was at the bus station back in Glendale. And at this point, she's not really sure where she is, but she finds out that she's not really close to Glendale. Like she's going to need a ride, a ride over there. And remember, she didn't even witness the ride to Michelle's house. She was in the trunk. She has mm-hmm. no idea where Michelle lives. 
So she sits down with the old man who gave her the quarter. His name is Sam. And she tells him her whole story. So he's like, you know what? I can sneak you into my retirement home and you can sleep on the floor of my room. And then in the morning, we can find a way to get you to the bus station. He gets her to the... (laughs) To his retirement home and he's got his like bunkmate you know it's him and his buddy and um they let her sleep on the floor and right before she goes to sleep sam is like can i ask you for one favor and instantly no. she's like panicked that he's gonna ask for like um, a sexual favor and oh she's like what is it and he tells her really honestly like well i have a thing for butts i was just wondering if i could touch your butt for a second and she's no! like well here's the thing i hope here's the thing she's like okay and he just kind of like cups her butt for a second and then he kind of like he he he, like a little boy giggles and he's just like wait till i tell my friends tomorrow and like that was the end of it and like among all the other things happening that was like what a relief that it wasn't worse but you know what i mean even the one the one person who seemed okay still kind of i had such i had such hopes for that person Mm mm-hmm yeah (sighs) Everybody sucks. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so disappointed. Yeah, but anyway, they that was it. That was the end of it and everybody went to sleep and in the morning they have to kind of they have to pretend she's a visitor and she's just arriving. So they take her into the dining hall during breakfast, but they can't feed her because she's not a resident of the place. So all the old people, all the residents kind of snuck food into a napkin and would pass it to her. Mm-hmm. Dawn called the bus station, and the voice on the other end told her, like, yeah, your bus ticket's still here, but by the way, your boyfriend has been calling looking for you. Oh, no. And she's just like, oh, my God, don't tell him anything, or like, no, if he calls again, tell him I already left, or tell him you haven't heard from me, or like, I don't know, like, she's like, just don't fucking tell him the truth. Okay, so that's actually where we're going to end the part one. That's it for today. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode about John Holmes. Don't forget, if you want to look at pictures and videos, all that extra information about this topic, you can go to brokenlimelight.com. Also, be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'm under DD West, and you can also follow DD West on Facebook or Instagram, or you can now follow Broken Limelight on Facebook and Instagram as well. If you want to suggest a case or just have a little chat, feel free to reach out to me at DD West at brokenlimelight.com or any of my social media channels. Thanks again, fam. Until next time. Not only is she 17 and he's 35, but he's divorced. Like he's already been through a marriage and done with a marriage and trying again while she's probably just leaving her parents' home. Yeah. So that's that's what concerns me. If you go on my YouTube, dude, like so many people are defending the sleeping with underage girls. And I'm just like, what 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 is this world like? Why, how did my my YouTube channel become this world where pedophiles come together? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that defend um, like pedophilia and uh, aphibophilia, like being with underage people. Uh, about it being the 70s and the time period, people make the same argument about the 1600s and like biblical era. And like the truth is that we weren't there so like we probably cannot relate we can't have that empathy you know because we legitimately were not there in that time period but what i can say is reading these books there were plenty of adults saying this was wrong so it's not something that was lost on everyone in that business about 13 inches worth 
Oh, I said that weird.